Let's open with prayer. Father, thank you for this morning that we can be here studying your word, digging into how to study your word deeper. Pray that you would be with us today, that you would give me the words to speak, and that I would not speak anything that you would not have me speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we were talking about identifying significant terms. You know, what are the significant terms of the text? This week we begin to kind of zoom out a little bit more. We're looking at the literary features. Basically, we're, we're looking at significant terms and features of the text in their context. Um, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, the context of what we're reading is of paramount importance. You know, what, what's going on? You know, we can't really accurately understand the words, ver you know, phrases, verses of the text without understanding the context of the text. Um, there are... So, yeah, so we're moving on to, you know, we're beginning to, like, zoom out. You know, we started at the beginning, you know, comparing different translations, asking the right questions, zooming into the words themselves, now we're on the zooming out. We're looking at the features. Then, you know, next week we're moving on, you know, looking at determining what's the literary unit um, of the text. So we've looked at how to read comparatively, you know, comparing the different translations of the text, reading inquisitively, being able to ask the right questions of the text, um, and reading discerningly, being able to identify significant terms of the text. Today, it's about reading attentively. How do we identify the literary features and what's going on in the text? As you can see by your handout, this, there are a lot of different literary features that show up throughout Scripture. Um, we are not going to go through all of these today. We would probably be here till five o'clock if we were to go through each one of these one by one. Um, but what I did is I took some of the, the more common or maybe some of the, the more difficult to understand or even some of what we're seeing show up as we're going through the book of Mark in our sermon series um, to really kind of dive into those a little bit deeper. But on your handout is a more comprehensive list of the different types of features, what they are, and examples of where they show up in the text. In a nutshell, literary features are the words or phrases that are used in a particular manner to communicate the truths of Scripture. Um, you know, if you, rem if you recall from last week when we talk about figurative language, we're looking for the literal truth that's being communicated by the text. Um, so even when, we're, even when we're looking at literary features that seem to be more symbolic or more figurative in nature, we're still looking for what is the truth of Scripture that's being communicated. Reading attentively involves not just seeing what we're reading, but accurately, accurately perceiving what one's reading. Not just what are the words that are on the page, but what do the words on the page mean? And what do they mean in their context? With the goal of, what's the one meaning of the text? 
what was the author's intent when he wrote what he wrote. And we accurately perceive what we're reading when we correctly identify the different literary features that show up in the text. You know, hyperbole versus similes versus metaphors versus other types of literary features. And in some ways, this may sound like an English literature class because some of these have probably shown up in high school or college English and literature. Um, a quote that I thought was probably helpful to understand where we're going with this was, one of the primary ways in which we can nurture exactness and precision in observation is to give specific labels to what we observe. Indeed, one is more likely to observe the various elements present in the text if one has labels or categories at hand. How, you know, being able to have kind of a mental database of what are the different literary features, what does it look like, what do these features mean, helps us read the text more in depth. If I have kind of that pre-existing literary framework, to be, able, to be able to identify what's going on. Um, you know, next week as we begin to identify literary units, we're gonna be identifying, um, also being able to identify things like the inclusio and other types, of, other types of textual features that show up when we look at literary units as a whole. If I don't know what an inclusio is as I'm reading the text, I'm not likely to be able to identify it when I see it. But knowing what that is and knowing what it looks like helps me be able to read the text at a deeper level. What's the most important part of this text? Where's the meaning of the text at? So consequently, if, if I'm using the observational lens of being able to identify a particular feature of the text, well, I know what that feature means. I know what it is. I know how it's used. And I know how to navigate its usage in the text to be able to identify the me and to discern the meaning of the text at a deeper level than just the surface level meaning of the words on the page. Because as we go through this, what we'll see is literary features are often used to communicate a particular meaning. So not just the words on the page, how those words are used. And that's, that's something that we need to remember, that the Bible communicates meaning not only by the specific words that it says, but also how it uses those words. And how it words and structures what it says can communicate meaning and emphasis, indicating where we should focus our attention. While... All, while we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, where we focus, where we focus our attention is based on what's the text telling us. And what the text is telling us is not just the words, but also how those words are used. Whether they're used in repetition, in comparing, in conditional clauses, how they're used communicates meaning as well. And there's really three main categories of literary features. There are others that show up much more infrequently, but these three, there's, 
what we call the readily observable literary features. And these are features that are more structural in nature. These are going to be like repetition, escalation of the text, conjunction. There will be others, you know, quotes, questions and answers. But these are things that are going to be more readily identifiable when we, when we read the text. We can see a pattern. There's figures of speech. These are figurative language that communicate a literal intention. These are things like simile, metaphors, synecdoche. Synecdoche? Yeah. Um, these would be things when we, see, when we see a phrase, you know, God is a rock. Well, that's metaphor. Is it communicating that literally God is a physical rock? No. But if we understand that that's metaphor, we understand that it's not communicating literally God is a rock, but there's a quality of a rock that is helping us to, in our very humanness, in very human terms, understand a characteristic of a transcendent God. And there's parallelism. This often shows up in poetry, although it's not just in poetry. It also shows up a lot in the prophetic literature. These would be balancing lines of poetry through correspondence of words and ideas. And we'll talk more about parallelism because that, that shows up a lot in, like I said, it shows up in the Psalms a lot. It shows up in Proverbs a lot. And it shows up in the minor prophets um, in the Old Testament a lot because a lot of the, the minor prophets are written in a poetic form or in the form of an oracle. Synecdoche. Okay. I'm going to trip over that pronunciation. Synecdoche. All right. We learn something new every day. Like I said, there are more than these, just these three broad categories, but these are probably some of the, the three major ones that will account for the overwhelming majority of literary features that we will run into in Scripture. An example where we talk about repetition, this is a very basic one. We talked about last week um, when we talk about uh, determining how do we identify significant terms? One of the ways that we identify significant terms is through repetition of words and phrases. You know, when we read a verse or a unit in scripture and the same, the same word, the same phrase, the same idea, or variants of the same word keep popping up, we know this is probably something that we should focus on. Jessica, could you look up Jonah 4.1? Ken, could you look up Romans eleven twenty eight through thirty two? I said, and we we see we see repetition th show up. This is probably one of the most common literary features that we will run into throughout the whole of Scripture, and it shows up Old Testament, New Testament. This one is probably the most common. Jessica, when you have Jonah four one. Jonah 4.1, this displeased Jonah terribly, and he became very angry. Okay. Is there repetition? Yes. What do we see as repetition in there? Displeased and angry. 
displeased and angry. Now, it's not, it's not like some of the examples last week where um, we see uh, no knowledge showing up repeatedly, but there's a certain amount of repetition. Ken, you know, Romans 11. Romans 11, 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What word or phrase keeps getting repeated through that text? Disobedience, Diso- mercy. Disobedience, mercy. Okay. Well, so through repetition, we can probably understand, at least on a basic level, disobedience and mercy are probably important concepts in that text. And as, I mean, as we see the greater context of it, it, it clearly is. That's the core of the text. One that shows up, um, we see this more showing up in the New Testament than the Old Testament. Um, and that's more of just at a base, uh, a base linguistic level. Hebrew doesn't really have clearly identifiable conditional clauses. It does. It does have conditional clauses, but they don't happen as often, and their usage isn't nearly as widespread. Greek has literary structures that very clearly designate something as a conditional clause. When we talk about conditional clauses, we're talking about statements of condition, that what follows is somehow dependent on what's said first. At the most basic level, when we talk about conditional clauses, these show up as if-then statements. If this, then this. They have, and conditional statements have two parts. There's the protasis, which is the primary independent condition. This is the premise of the statement. In our if-then statements, this is the if. If X happens, and X isn't dependent on anything else in that statement, if X happens, then the apodasis happens. That's the dependent result, the then statement. So if X, then Y. This shows up all throughout the New Testament, very frequently in Paul's letters and very significantly in Romans, but really throughout a lot of the New Testament because unlike Hebrew, the Greek has some very, like I say, clear literary structures that identify something as a conditional clause. And we're focusing on on the conditional clauses or conditional statements because if we don't accurately identify a conditional statement, we can draw some really funky conclusions from the text because not all conditional statements are created equally. There's, There's four types of conditional statements 
only three of which show up clearly in the New Testament. One, the, the fourth type shows up partially, but we don't have a complete example in the, Old Te- in the New Testament of the fourth type. So we won't focus a whole lot on that one. But when we talk about the, the classes of conditional statements, there's our first one. This is our basic if-then statement. If this is true, then this is true. There, then, if this is true, then this will happen. Lily, could you look up Philippians 2, 1, and verses 1 and 2? Oftentimes in a first-class condition, because the first part of the argument, the premise of the statement, is assumed to be true for the sake of argument, a lot of times that if, not all the time, because there are times it doesn't quite work out, but usually that if can also be understood to mean since or because. Because X is true, this will happen. You know, or since X is true, Y will happen. Lily, when you have it. Verses, just chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and he goes on, What's the if part of that statement? Because we, we have the first type of conditional statement. What's the if part of that clause? It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, that's the if statement. Now, as Paul is saying this, that if... He's not saying it hypothetically. He's saying it, and he's assuming that to be true. So what he's really communicating, because there is, any, because there is encouragement in Christ, there is comfort th- from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, then what? Complete my joy. Because this is true, this has to follow. There's a whole lot more. But the basic, the basic if-then statement is because in Christ this is true, then he's saying, make my joy complete by doing these things. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. This is assumed, the first part is assumed to be true. Because in Christ, this is true. Then this follow. This must follow. That's the most basic type of conditional if-then statement that will show up in, all, in the New Testament. But there's a second 
the second type, where the if statement, the protasis, is assumed to be false for the sake of argument. Ken, could you look up Luke 7.39? And Jessica, could you prepare for the next one with John 12, 32? Ken, when you have Luke 7, 39. Luke 7, 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. If this man were a prophet, then he would have known what type of woman had... I just want, don't want to misquote it. Yeah, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, who and what sort of woman this is. If he really were a prophet, and I'm assuming he is not then he would have known. Because if he had known, he wouldn't be associating with her. Because a good Jew would have recognized he's unclean, she's unclean. So this is another one that it's in an if-then format. But the first statement, the if, if this man really were a prophet, it's assumed to be false. So the difference you know, between the first type and the second type in the first class, the, the if is assumed to be true. In the second part, it's assumed, or the second type, it's assumed to be false. And we know this because it, rather than saying, if he is a prophet, it's, list, it's more of if he were. We see kind of that past tense showing up. We know that tends to be an indication, I'm assuming this is false. But these aren't the only two types. These are probably the two clearest types that will show up. The third type, it's more future-oriented. I don't know it for certain, but it's highly probable, but it's still hypothetical because it has yet to be fulfilled. So it's if this happens, then this will at some point in the future, but it hasn't happened yet. Jessica, could you read John 12, 32? We see, a, we see an example here. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. If this happens, then this will happen. Right. But it still is an if-then statement because this is the protasis, the statement is when I am lifted up, so that's the if, when this occurs, then this will occur at some point in the future. Now we know from here Jesus saying this will happen, so it's, it is probable this is going to happen. I know this is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So from the point of the person speaking, 
it's still a bit hypothetical. But I know when I see this type of statement, I know that while this is still a hypothetical, it hasn't yet been fulfilled, I can still have confidence in it. This is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Just make one comment on that. The, um, the ESV, so in the Greek, the, the Greek is where it's very clear that this is a conditional statement. Yeah. The ESV translates it interpretively to kind of smooth out the condition to make it clear that this is something that there's an assumption that this will happen in the future. So it's not phrased as a if-then in the ESV, but if you open up like the NESB, it does say, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So the if-then is preserved in other translations. Yeah. This, is, this is one, so the, the first two types um, are are probably the clearest to identify and translate as if then when we get to this third and fourth like it's, it's it tends to be very clear in the greek that this is conditional because there are there are linguistic features in the greek that identify it as conditional it's not always the easiest to translate and render um and so we see the fourth type which is a future-oriented remote, what's called the future-oriented remote possibility. We have no examples, no complete examples of fourth-class conditions in the New Testament. There are some partial ones that show up, I think, in 1 Peter and a couple other places, but we're really, we really won't run into any complete examples of this, so I don't really focus a whole lot on this because there just aren't complete examples of it. But why do we focus on so much on conditional statements? Conditional statements are the basis of logic statements. You know, if then, if this, then this. In order to, in order to adequately or correctly identify the logic of a particular passage, we have to accurately identify the parts of the logical statement. Because if we don't, or if we identify something as the wrong type of conditional statement, we can come to some very inaccurate conclusions about what that text is actually communicating. But the literary features the observable literary features aren't just the only types of features that show up. We also, there are figures of speech that show up. Um, figures of speech tend to be more symbolic, symbolic language in nature. Um, there are a lot of different types of literary features. We're not going to go through all of them because, again, we would be here all night. The most common literary... Uh, figures of speech that we see in the Bible are a comparison, the simile and metaphor. So comparisons using like or as. Lily, could you look up Psalm 1-4? Or we have metaphor, a comparison using the form of the verb to be. So am, is, are, was, were, be, be, being. Yeah. 
Again, remember I said at the beginning, there's going to be a lot of this that sounds like your English 101 class. Because again, those same literary features show up in Scripture. Ken, do you have Psalm 31.3? Are, are you turning to 31.3? Okay. So, Lily, when you have Psalm 1.4... The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. What's our simile? The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. So I'm learning something about the wicked through a like or as comparison to chaff. So there's... There is literal meaning that's being communicated through figurative language. Ken, what about Psalm 31.3? Incline your ear... Oh, that's the wrong verse. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. What's the metaphor? You are my rock and my fortress. You are my rock... You being, it's, he, David is referring to God. You are my rock and my fortress. Is David saying that God is literally a rock and literally a fortress? No. But we're learning something about the characteristics and nature of who God is through a comparison to something that we in our humanness can comprehend. So it's still communicating a, a literal truth about the character and nature of God through this comparison. And that's going to be something that's important to keep in mind through all of the different types of figures of speech. It is communicating a literal truth through figurative language. And here's the one that I wasn't... Synecdoche. Synecdoche. Okay. This is the substitution of a part for the whole. One that we see, where we see this show up. We've seen this show up in several places throughout the book of Mark as we're working through our sermons. Jessica, can you read Mark 139? And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What's the synecdoche there? It's not, maybe not quite as clear. Galilee and then referring it to there. No, that's referring literally to the province of Galilee. Remember, referring to Jesus' ministry, preaching and casting out demons. And we see, that, we see that show up throughout Mark as now was Jesus' only ministry that he did preaching and casting out demons. Was that, is that all Jesus did? No. no, he did so much more. But what the author of Mark does to, to give a summation of the whole of Jesus' ministry, he uses the phrase, preaching and casting out of demons. And that, that part of his ministry is meant to be representative of the entirety of his ministry. 
sometimes this doesn't always show up clearly. We see here where it's teaching and then casting out demons. Sometimes it shows up clearly teaching and casting out demons. But if we know what we're looking for, and sometimes we can identify where a synecdoche, synecdoche, when we see repetition show up. But like in the book of Mark, where we see that repetition show up isn't necessarily, you know, rapid fire verse after verse through Mark 1, but we see preaching and casting out of demons in 139. Then we see that phrase pop up in subsequent chapters at different places. So that's, that's repetition, but we really only see that repetition if we zoom out from, from um, that one specific verse. So when we see that, that type of repetition show up, oh, well, maybe we can start saying, is there something else going on other than just repetition? Is Mark using this to represent the whole. Where this shows up in the Old Testament, um, last week one of the verses that we read was in, in Hosea was referring to Ephraim. Well, we know Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel, and yet poetically in, in, in the prophetic literature, Ephraim being just one part of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 tribes is often used to refer to the whole of the tribes. So that's another example of where we see synecdoche show up in the Old Testament. And the reason why we really want to be mindful of when we're seeing this particular type of literary feature show up is because if we're not recognizing this feature for what it is, sometimes we can draw some overly specific conclusions that aren't really supported by the text. For example, if we say, oh, well, Jesus is preaching and casting out demons, and that is the entirety of his ministry. That's all he did. Well, we then miss some very important characteristics and qualities of who Jesus is. We can miss the bigger picture if we, if we don't recognize this particular feature that when it shows up. Hyperbole is another example. We see this, it's a deliberate exaggeration to communicate a point. Jessica, do you have Mark 8, 18, or Matthew 18, 9? And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Is Jesus telling us to literally rip out our eyes and throw it away? I mean, throughout, I, I would hope not. I mean, now throughout history, there have been people who have quite, who have taken that verse quite literally. And then some, absolutely. Um, 
is he literally, is he calling us to dismember ourselves? We choose to believe no. Well, no. It's, this is a hyperbole. It's, an, it's a deliberate exaggeration, but it's communicating the point. What's the point? What's he, com- what's he communicating through here? That we are responsible for our own sins. How does, the, how does exaggeration communicate that? If, if looking at... If there is something in front of you that is sinful, it, like this is saying, cast your, take, chuck your eye out. But it's our responsibility to turn away. It's not the fault of what's in front of us. Okay. It's our need to manage our sins. Okay. Ken, you looked like you had a comment. <laughs> you grabbed the mic. Well, the, the, the principle is, is about the radical amputation, doing whatever it takes to get rid of sin. Yeah. Like, I'm, I don't want this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to remove it from myself. Yeah. So that's the... Yeah, I mean, it's a communication that in, in the regenerate individual, sin has no place. And we really should take it's not, we can't just partially tolerate sin. A little bit of sin is okay over here. No, get rid of it all. Get rid of it all. You know, we think of when, when the Jews are preparing for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What do they do in their kitchens? They, they purge they purge the yeast, they purge the leaven because it gets everywhere. And it, they're not just told, you know, oh, hey, wipe down the counter, you'll be okay. It's get rid of it. You have to clean the entire thing. Get rid of it. There shouldn't be a speck of it left. That's what, that's what Jesus is communicating and he's using exaggeration to make that point about the nature of sin and the regenerate individual. We also see rhetorical questions. And we probably all ask rhetorical questions all the time. I'm asking a question, but I'm not really intending anyone to ever respond to it. I'm throwing it out there to demonstrate a point. We see this a lot, um, particularly at the end of Job, where God shows up on scene and starts asking all of the questions. Jennifer, could you look up Job eight or thirty-eight two? Okay, if you that's fine. Don't worry about it then. Uh, Ken, could you get Job 38-2? <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. It's just a day. Not a problem. I almost turned to Job 32-8. Hey. Instead of 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? For context, this is after, um, after Job's friends have been responding and uh, giving him their advice and counsel. Job 38, God shows up on scene. And the first words out of his mouth, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he goes on, dress for action like a man, I will question you and you will make it known to me. Is God really asking, who are you? I don't know you. It's like a, who do you think you are? Yeah, it, it is, who do you think you are? I know who I am. Who do you think you are compared to me? The answer, is, the answer is obvious. A response is never intended. Or necessary. Or necessary. Yeah, it's never intended or necessary because the answer is self-evident. The last, and we're going we're gonna to rush through this real fast. We see parallelism. Parallelism is basically a correspondence of words and phrases Often this shows up in poetry, it shows up in the prophetic literature. Um, we see synonymous where the thoughts in each line correspond to each other by means of similarity. Jess, what do you have for 19.1? Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Day to day corresponds with night to night. What's the ver what are the verbs? Pours out, reveals, direct objects, speech, and knowledge. So there's a, there's a correspondence by means of similarity across these lines. So we can, draw we can draw certain conclusions just based on the structure. Ken, do you have Proverbs 15.1? Are you in there? So we have antithetical parallelism where the thoughts on each line correspond to each other by means of contrast. They line up, they correspond, you know, the subjects, verbs, objects, they line up with each other, but they're contrasted. We have, we have, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Soft answer, harsh word, turns away, stirs up. So there's a correspondence, I may put down the wrong, but there's a correspondence, but it's by means of contrast. There's what we call synthetic, where the first line, Jessica, could you look up Proverbs 20, verse 4, or I'm sorry, 22, 9, where the primary thought in the first line corresponds but is developed and enriched by the second whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor what's the first part of that statement whoever has a bountiful eye a bountiful eye what's the second part will be blessed oh, no. no no the next part okay for he shares his bread with the poor for he shares his bread with the poor that second part is building 
on that first. Of course, they correspond to each other, but it's building. Oftentimes, the second part elaborates on the first part. There's also emblematic. Ken, can you get Proverbs 11.2? Wow, I put down... I believe it's two. I may have just copied it down wrong on the... When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Nope, it's probably 22. Because that is definitely... Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So each line corresponds to each other, but going back to what we talked about with figures of speech, with simile, there's a comparison. You see, a beautiful woman, what was it? A beautiful woman with... Without discretion. Without discretion. Okay. Well, what is that like? A gold ring in a pig snout. What do we... So what do we draw from that? A gold ring, attention getting, something beautiful, a pig snout. Common, Common, but not just common, undesirable. Well, and keep in mind, the Jewish context of this, we're talking about a pig. This is an unclean animal. So it's something beautiful, but unclean, stay away. We learn something about that by understanding the literary structure. And the final one we have is climactic parallelism, where each line is building towards something else. Can, Jessica, can you look up Amos 3.15? I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. I will strike the winter house. So that, that's the beginning. And then each line after it is building on what's happening, what's happening, what's happening, and then the end result. And by being able to identify that, we, it also, next week, when, we're, when we move on to the last, the, next, the last part of observation, it can also help us identify what the literary units are because sometimes what we'll see, especially with climactic parallelism, um, you can see in the example on the handout in Psalm 29, sometimes that parallelism expands over multiple verses. So to be able to accurately identify what's the literary unit that we're working here, that we're working with here, we also have to be able to identify what, what are the features that are present and do those features spread over multiple verses so that we're not breaking up. For example, we're not breaking up the parallelism. Because if we break up the parallelism, it's not going to make any sense. Like I said, this, there's, a, there's a lot on here. I would encourage you to look over the handout. 
um, use it as reference. The last page on the handout is not related to this week's. This is more related to last week's when we were talking about um, comparing, uh, comparing some of the exegetically difficult texts, you know, when different translations say different things or how to compare translations to be able to get the most out of it. We're going to get the most out of comparing translations when we're comparing different translation families. If we're comparing within the same family, there may be some word differences that happen here and there, but by and large, it's going to be the same. We're probably going to miss some of the difficult texts because generally speaking, the, within the same translation family, the difficult texts by and large get translated the same way. That's not a hard and fast rule, but more often than not. So when we're kind of choosing translations to compare, try to, try to compare, compare translations from different translation families. So I put this together because the, picture, the diagram that I put up and printed out for last week really was not particularly legible. So um, hopefully this is more legible and more useful and we can kind of see the different translation families. So, and with that, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for this day and for this morning that we can gather to study your word, to dig into your word deeper and gather to worship you. Pray that you would be with us now as we move into a time of worship, worshiping you through singing and worshiping you through the exposition of your word. Pray that you would be with us and that all that we say and do would bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.